Alright guys, if you have your Bibles, please get them. Where are we going to be studying today? Mark. Yes. Woo-hoo. So, um, it is so good to be with you guys this morning, obviously, to be celebrating Jesus, to be taught in His Word, and to be reminded, um, no matter what happens in our days, or in our weeks, or how much pain we're feeling, or how much suffering we're going through, or how much confusion, or how much patience we need, that Jesus is the answer to all of those different things. Um, we were reading, uh, as we've been working through the Bible together this week, we came across a passage that says, the things of this world, the things around us, the world, the physical, it will all fade away, but Jesus will remain forever, only Him and His Word. And so we need to be taught His Word to know what it is that is valuable and is important. Now, we study the Bible because we believe we need to know what God's Word is for us. A lot of times people say, I don't really know what God wants for me. And the first question I'll often ask is, well, have you read God's word? Well, no. Well, this is the word of God to us so that we might know what his desire is for you and for me. And here at Church of the Ward, we love the Bible for the existence of Church of the Ward. My hope and prayer is that we'll just work through books of the Bible. And so right now we're working through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this is a slide that will kind of just help us understand a bit of the structure of the book of Mark. Uh, so we're in chapter 2, verses uh, 13 uh, to 22 today. So as you can see, this is a bit of a nerdy graph for people like me who loves to know the structure of the book. But as we've been talking about, the first eight chapters that you can see at the top is that the king is here, and his name is Jesus. The Jews of that day expected that a king, a Messiah, was going to come. And so the first eight chapters, what Mark is trying to help us understand is the king is here, his name is Jesus, and the second part, 9 to 16, is that, but he's not the kind of king that you were expecting. Uh, As you can see, then, as we move down uh, through each chapter, there's kind of a theme that Mark is trying to present to us about each chapter. So we're in chapter 2. We'll be moving into chapter 3 next week when Jeff teaches us. But it's focusing on the authority of Jesus. That he has authority. The king is here. His name is Jesus. And this king, Jesus, has authority. Uh, Then below that, you can kind of see where geographically we are. So Jesus is in Galilee. As you see, as you move more to the right, he's eventually going to end up in Jerusalem. And then the the piece that I love the most about the structure is like the timeline. So the first... Um, the first 10 or 12 chapters of the book of Mark happens over a timeline of three years, and then the last uh, 12 to 16 happens over one week. Okay, so as we go through, it's like this large amount of time, and at the end, it's going to focus on the passion. And if you were here last week, we studied a whole chapter and then a few verses, and that all happens within that one week. So as we kind of understand Mark, this is really, really helpful. And then for some of us that like to be able to visually put into place, where is Jesus? Because Galilee is not some imaginary land like something from Lord of the Rings. Galilee is an actual place, and you can go and visit. And so Jesus, in his first years of ministry, is doing and taking place all in Galilee. And as we've learned, he's been in Capernaum, which is the upper left-hand north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, As we learned a couple weeks ago, this is what's considered his home, kind of his home base, where he hung out. And we even saw remnants, as I talked to you that week, of this home of Jesus. So, that all said, off the get-go, let's jump in. We're in Mark 2, verses 13 to 17, or 13 to 22. This passage is broken up into two sections. We're going to look at 13 to 17, which uh, I've titled, Some Like Levi Can Be Disciples of the King. And then the second section, 
The second section will move into uh, a different part of this passage. As we go along, there's two things we're trying to, to trying to figure out. We always ask when we go to the Bible, is Jesus, show me who you are. We want to know who Jesus is because we want to live like Jesus. It's not what would Jesus do, it's then what would Jesus have you do. Alright, so we first want to figure out, Jesus, show me who you are, and then two, Jesus, show me how to live. And so we're just going to work through this passage, line by line, figure out what's going on, who is this Jesus character, and what can we learn from him. So Mark 2, verses 13 to 17, some like Levi can be disciples of the king. Verse 13, he went out again, this is Jesus, goes out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching him. Uh, went out again does not necessarily mean that this is picking up from where we left off in verse 12. It just means that he's going out, he's leaving Capernaum again, uh, so it's sometime later. We read that he goes out beside the sea. Uh, what I love about this is, um, alongside is this Greek word para, and what he's talking about is the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. He enjoyed the seashore like you and I do. Alright? Jesus, he liked going to the sea. He liked the beach. So he went, and we read that he's walking along the seashore, probably taking in the beautiful creation that his father has created. And then we read, this is going crazy, this thing here. Is there anybody who can maybe fix this? Pete, I'm sorry to get you up and go up. But we read, secondly, that, or thirdly, that the crowd was coming to him. So the verb tense here is actually that the crowd kept on coming to him. Alright, Jesus, wherever Jesus go, people want to go. He is that attractive. He's this rabbi, as we've learned, that speaks with authority. Pete, you are awesome, by the way. This is great. I'm sorry, I feel like a real diva right here. You are awesome. I, I would just be fumbling with Is that going to work? Oh, you're great. Everyone give a hand for Pete. Alright, so the crowd was coming to him, which as I said, literally the verb tends to mean the crowd kept on coming to him. So what can, what does this show us about Jesus? We've said it before, but Jesus attracts crowds. Jesus attracts crowds. We don't need, as I've said before, we don't need to make Jesus more attractive. Jesus himself will attract people because of who he is, what he taught, and then what we can then learn from him. Okay, Jesus attracts crowds. And what was he then doing? Let's read on. And he was teaching them. Um, the verb tense is actually is that the crowd kept on coming to him, and then he kept on teaching them. So a big priority in Jesus' ministry is teaching. Um, he just, it was important. And so we here at Church of the Lord, if this is what Jesus did, then we have to understand that in Church of the Lord, we see that teaching God's word is of enormous importance. In Mark 1, 14 to 15, a passage we've already studied when Nathan Fullerton was here, uh, it says this, uh, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So the next point I want to make after the fact that Jesus uh, attracts crowds is this one, is that Jesus provides when crowds come to him. Right? Jesus provides. Crowds are coming and he's not like, guys, leave me alone. I kind of like to just enjoy this beach scene, this seashore. When they come to him, he responds to them. What I see this as a very important thing for us as believers is that when people come to us, when people are following us, when people are desiring to hear what we have to say or coming to our homes, we have an opportunity then to provide for them like Jesus did. That we can see this as an opportunity to teach them. That it's not an opportunity to be passive and maybe just go sleep on the couch. But if people are showing up at our homes, we have an opportunity 
to come alongside them, to love them as Jesus loved them. And he, he just provides what they need. Uh, let's continue on, verse 14. Uh, and he passed by, and as he passed by, this is him along the seashore, kind of moving along, he saw Levi, the son of Alpheus. Um, if either, I did not naming my child Alpheus, but if uh, uh, Jeff and Eliza or Matt and Sarah have a boy, Alpheus would be a good one. Um, <laughs> you got it? All right, good. All right, I'm glad that's taken care of. He, you know, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now, there's a bit of something going on here. Uh, we read that Levi is sitting at a tax booth. And tax booths in those days were toll gates, uh, and it's on the Great West Road from Damascus to the Mediterranean. So there's a whole group of people that would often go through, and they would need to go and approach Levi at this tax booth. Um, this was also the customs office at Capernaum, the landing place for many ships that traverse the Sea of Galilee or coasted from town to town, taxing fishermen. All right, so notice Jesus has already called fishermen, and the next person that he's calling here is a tax collector. This is very, very important because Jesus did not just say, I'm only going to call fishermen. He calls in a, another group of people and not a group of people that are enjoyed nor liked by fishermen. All right. So Jesus has these other disciples that are following him. And so for them, when he approaches this tax booth, there's a lot going on here. Uh, a tax collector collected toll for Herod Antipas. He was an employee of the Roman government who had bled its subjects for taxes. Uh, tax collectors were hated and despised by the Jews and were classed as sinners. Uh, Rome and all who collaborated with Rome were despised by Jews. Uh, probably for Levi, Levi cared more for money than the good regard of his countrymen because he himself was a Jew, but he didn't mind contributing towards Jewish poverty as he employed the heavy Roman tax on his fellow men. And most tax collectors, get this, would skim money from tax for themselves. So this is a tax collector, okay? He works for the power of the day, the Romans. He is a Jew himself, but rather than caring for his fellow Jewish people, he went, worked for Rome, so that then he could tax the Jews. As long as the Romans got the money that they were supposed to get, they didn't care if the tax collectors upped that tax. So this is what Levi was typically known of doing, of saying, you know, the, the fishermen would come in, pay their toll after going through the Sea of Galilee for fishermen, for fishing. Now they're to be go fishing men. And what they would do is say, you owe this amount of money. Well, that was different than last time. I don't care if the Roman government wants it, give it to me. And so they would take the money and then they would pocket it. So Levi was much of the reason for the fishermen's poverty. Direct correlation. And Levi himself, as a tax collector, was going to take in what he needed or what he actually wanted. Uh, he didn't care much for them. Notice then what Jesus does. It says, follow me. Uh, this is a Greek word, akalatheo, which is to walk the same road, to follow one who proceeds, to join him as an attendant, to join one of his disciples, to side with his party. Uh, this is far more an invitation. It is given as far more than an invitation. It's given as a command. This is the authority of Jesus' voice. Follow me. He points out this man that would have hated, despised. His other disciples are probably sitting there like, are you kidding me, Levi? Really, Jesus? Uh, this is where I read in uh, 
commentary this week of what this talks about. Levi left his tax collector's desk in the power of a compulsion which he did not understand. It meant poverty for him. Instead of the affluence and luxury to which he had been accustomed, the verb is in the present tense, commanding the beginning of an action and its habitual continuance. It is, start following me and continue as a habit of life to follow me. This meant for Levi that henceforth he would walk the same road that Jesus walked, a road of self-sacrifice, a road of separation, a road of altruism, a road of suffering, a road of holiness, but... The command was not merely follow me. It was follow with me. The pronoun is in the associative instrumental case. The person indicated by the pronoun is the instrument which completes the association between the two individuals. Our Lord did not therefore merely command Levi to become his follower. He welcomed to a participation in his companionship. And this with me companionship was not one of an Indian file nature, one following after another. It was a side-by-side walk down the same road. And this blessed fellowship is for every believer in the Lord Jesus. So this invitation to follow is not just solely to Levi. It's to you and me. To walk the same road as Jesus. To be willing to give up what is behind us in the focus of following Jesus Christ. Now this obviously brings up an important point is what have you given up for the sake of following Jesus? Because there is something really critical here, as I've said, with Levi. He leaves one way and goes another way. And the scriptures talk about this, that when we follow Jesus, there's an old way of life, and then there's this new way of life. Uh, take Ephesians 2, 1-5, for example. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because, get this, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we are dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Then in Galatians 5, we read, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. There is a before and after when it comes to entering into a relationship with Jesus. It's not enough to say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me still go and take the tax and steal the money and continue this way of life. It's to cost you something. It's turning completely the other way. I think of when Andre and I got married. There was one way of thinking about my life when Andre and I were not married. And then there was a completely new way of thinking about life when Andre and I were married. And this is the beautiful thing about marriage, as Genesis tells us, is that the two become one flesh. So they're no longer separate. They're no longer two separate families. They're one family, one family unit. So everything that I do intrinsically affects Andre. And everything Andre does intrinsically affects me. That we are one. There is a before and after when it comes to marriage, as there is a before and after when you and I make decisions to follow Jesus. And my concern here, when I read this, is that many of us in our culture become nominal Christians because we don't think we need to give everything up for the sake of following Jesus. And this, I think, affects us from the very core, and even some of the practical things that we do, like the things we view on television. Or the things and places that we go and participate in activities in. 
Does following Jesus cost you what you watch on television? Should it? Does following Jesus affect your conversation with other people? Does following Jesus affect how you view your relationship? I believe it does. And Jesus says, follow me. Like he says to Levi, Levi, leave that. You might not have all the money that you've had for the longest time. You actually probably won't. As Jesus says in Luke, he says, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's in essence calling Levi to come and say, you might not know where you're going to lie tonight. Are you willing to do that? Whereas Levi was used to this life of luxury. In other places, Jesus says, if you hate this, what he's really in essence saying, love less. Do you love everything else in your life less than the fact of how much you love Jesus? Is he supremely important? That's what Jesus is calling Levi to. Now, here's the first point I want to make about this. Jesus was a Jew. (laughs) This isn't supposed to be just this funny thing. Jesus was a Jew. He was born as a Jewish man. Many of us have been born into some sort of identity that we feel has been placed on our life. And so therefore we feel we have to live, in essence, in that identity. I think of people that are born into a Muslim home. They're born, and their parents teach them that you are born a Muslim. And Muslims actually believe that when you, if you decide that you want to be a Muslim, you've always been a Muslim, so actually you're just reverting to what you were born into. So think about this then. If Jesus was a Jew, there was a certain expectation of the way that he was supposed to live and what he was supposed to do as a Jew. But Jesus does the exact opposite thing by approaching this Levi, this tax collector, and saying, follow me. So what this means, and this is a beautiful freedom, is that even though you might have been pegged through your birth and through your life as one type of person, does not mean you need to live that way. That's amazing. Just because you were born into a home where alcohol was the God that was worshipped in your home does not, not mean that you, once you come to Christ, have to walk with alcohol being your idol. There is a new beginning with Jesus. Everything that was changes in the face of Jesus Christ. This is key. Jesus looks past what the world or religious deem as unacceptable. He saw past it. It wasn't the fact that, that Levi was this tax collector. Is that Levi is this man that he's going to follow me and it's going to completely change his life. He looked past. And this is beautiful because then it challenges us to look past what we think is religiously acceptable and what religiously isn't. Jesus looks past all of that. Thirdly, Jesus gives second chances. How many of you want second chances? You feel like you've messed it up time and time and time again. Jesus gives second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, sixth chances. Over and over and over again, he gives you another chance, as he does with Levi. And then Jesus sees the potential no one else sees. Jesus sees the potential that nobody else sees. See, Jesus saw Levi and he thought, savvy businessman that's going to help grow my kingdom. He didn't think, savvy businessman that's going to steal out of my pocket. Savvy businessman that's going to help grow the kingdom. Jesus sees the same thing in you. What everybody else is frustrated with you about, Jesus sees in you and loves and says, let's use that for the glory of my kingdom. Nothing else. All for me. All about my desires for you. And then Jesus' call is one of authority. Listeners listen, and they respond to Jesus. Just respond. 
When Jesus commands you to do something, it's far more valuable than what I would ask you to do, what your people that you're in accountability relationships will ask you to do. If Jesus commands it, you will respond. This is, this is why I believe we as a body, as a group, as a church, need to simply just pray that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus would convict people, that we can call and challenge and command. But if they do it because we told them to, they're going to be resentful towards us. If they do it because Jesus called and commanded them to, they'll live for Jesus. Right? It's the same thing when it comes to our missional communities and living life on mission. Our desire always is that we would move into a neighborhood, that we'd love that neighborhood, that we'd serve that neighborhood. But if you do it because I told you to, you're going to probably be mad at me when things don't start working out the way that you thought it was going to. Like Matt and Sarah. They, Sarah quit her job, praying and trusting that another job would be provided. Another job hasn't necessarily been provided. And we're just trusting. If they had moved to the war because I told them to, they'd be pissed at me now. <laughs> Why'd you tell us to move? I don't even have another job. But they're living and serving and self-sacrifice for Jesus Christ because he told them to do it. And so if Jesus commands you to do it, you're going to do it because Jesus has that authority. Um, not your accountability partners or no one else or your pastor can have that authority. Um, it's got to be Jesus. Let's continue on. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there are many who followed him. Uh, the phrase, as he reclined at the table, literally means to lie prostrate, to have lain down. To recline at a table indicates personal acceptance and cordiality. This is not a situation of tables and chairs, but reclining on couches. The head of this raised end of the couch being at the table. So I have this picture. This is like literally how they dined. Um, it's a bit odd, but like they had literally had couches for their tables, and they would like kind of lie there with their head facing, which I think like just like legitimately like my arm would get sore, right? Like you're constantly resting on it, so maybe they constantly like flipped and switched or whatever, but typically the person that was hosting would be uh, in the middle, so this picture doesn't show that, and the people of greatest importance would sit kind of towards the top of that U, or the bottom of that U, towards the peaks, and they would kind of lie there, literally reclining at the table, lying there, imagine that, eh? like tonight for dinner, just put your table on the ground and lie there together, <laughs> like just, just see what it's like, so they were literally reclining, we read that they're in his house, this is Levi's house, uh, Luke 5, 529 confirms that for us, that this is the home of Levi's. And Levi has made Jesus a great feast, and many sat together with Jesus. We read that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining there with Jesus. This is a group Jesus would not have had access to in the synagogues. Expositors seem to suggest Jewish tax collectors had been excluded from the synagogue because they were working for Rome. So the Jewish tax collectors, even though they were Jewish, were not allowed into the synagogues. But notice what Jesus does. Well, you're not going to come to me, so I'm going to go to you. Levi, let's go to your house. Let's have a feast and invite all your sinful friends because I want to be with them. It's amazing. When people encounter their Savior, they cannot help but tell others in their circle about him. Get that. When people encounter Jesus, they can't help but tell everybody else in their circle. This is why when someone comes to know Jesus, they go back to their friends like, you've got to get to know this Jesus. Like CJ back there. CJ is like on fire for Jesus Christ. He's been like taken over by Jesus and he just can't stop talking about Jesus to people. Isn't that right, CJ? 
I don't know if you don't like being pointed out, but he's doing that. He goes, he goes to the pharmacy the other day. A woman walks in, and the woman at the pharmacy says, how was your week? Or how was your weekend? He says, great weekend, got baptized. And then he starts telling them all about his baptism. Like, that's amazing. When you encounter your Savior, you can't help but tell other people about this. This is exactly what Jesus, what, what Jesus does with Levi and who Levi responds with, right? Levi's this rabbi, Jesus, the one with authority, the one that everybody has heard about. He asked me to follow him. You've got to come spend some time with him. Would you come over for a feast? We'll recline at my table with him. <laughs> yes, I'll come. That's amazing. And notice Jesus isn't alone here, but he takes his disciples. <laughs> so imagine, this is hilarious. Imagine being one of these disciples heading into their enemy's home. Right? Because for these disciples, it's not just, oh, we're going to Levi's, cool. It's like, no, the person that we've excluded, the person that has caused poverty in our life, Jesus says, hey, we're going over to Levi's, let's go. Really, Jesus? You really think we should go there? So I think there's some critical lessons we can obviously take from this, starting with this. Um, Jesus was always up for a free meal. I love Jesus. All right, Jesus is always up for a free meal. He, Levi invites him over and says, sure, I'm coming, right? And over and over again, through the scriptures, especially in the Gospels, we see Jesus going to people's house for a meal. He loves a good, free meal. Um, Jesus loved being with people in their homes to eat and drink. <laughs> he loves being in their homes. Um, later on, we'll read about another tax collector who Jesus says, well, invite me over to your home. So he goes to his home with him. Jesus entered people's homes. And this is why at Church of the Lord, we believe it's so powerful. One, when we invite people into our homes to eat and drink, and when we go into other people's homes and eat and drink. Why? Because of what Jesus did. This is one of the beauties of following Jesus. We welcome people into our homes, we get our collection, our circles of people together, and we share with them Jesus. Right? The way of Jesus is through eating and drinking. Uh, the hilarious thing about Jesus is he was called uh, glutton and uh, a drunkard. So the, 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 the Pharisees called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because he was constantly eating with people. <laughs> like, too bad. I, I want that to be said of me. He, he's just eating and, and drinking with people. He's, yeah, that's amazing. So Jesus does go and tell and come and see. So there's a level of Jesus' ministry where he does the come and see when he's in the synagogues and when he's walking by the seashore. But then there's also the side of Jesus that is go and tell. Sometimes we are really good at come and see. So you've got to come to our reunion. Well, what about going and telling? Each and every single one of you are in different places throughout the week, meaning that you have different spheres of influence. You are go and tell people wherever you are, your workplaces. So your workplace or whoever you work with, there's somebody that you're called to go and tell with. And then you go eat and you get to go drink with them. Next is Jesus attracts all kinds of people. This Savior is not just one kind of Savior. He's everybody's Savior. He attracts all kinds of people. He wasn't supposed to eat with them, but he does, and they're attracted to him. Jesus hangs out with sinners. Ooh, sinners. Right? Jesus hangs out with sinners. We are sinners. Everybody outside of this place today, we're all sinners. And Jesus hung out with them. So we have to see that for us to follow Jesus, to show Jesus, show us how to live, is that we've got to be willing to eat with people that are messy, that are difficult, that don't always see things the way that we do, and just simply love them as Jesus loves them extremely, extremely powerful then when we actually do that and when we actually do it well. Let's continue on because there's some people 
that weren't very impressed with what Jesus has done. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, they're going to go to Jesus, they go to the disciples, because they know probably they're going to have a bit of credibility with the disciples, because the disciples are probably a little bit uncomfortable too. So what do they, what do they say? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So again, these scribes and Pharisees are scribes who belong to the sect of the Pharisees. They were young uh, theologians, divinity students, could be considered them today. They were small but highly influential group of Jews who emphasized meticulous observance of God's laws as a mean by which someone attains righteousness before God and attains his favor. There were 613 laws that they followed, and then they create some more just because they wanted to follow them. They're all about the law. So when they see Jesus, for them, Jesus eating with them and associating with them and reclining at the table with them was saying, these people are acceptable to me. And like, you can't think that way. You're a rabbi. Don't do that, is basically what they're saying. Um, and this is actually backed up in Leviticus 10.10. You are distinguished between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. So while people in our day might, say, might not say straight out, I would never invite that person over for a meal, the Pharisees lived in that perspective. I would never invite those people over for a meal. Their dinners, their meals were specifically like, we don't eat with them, we only eat with these type of people. Oh, hey, 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 you can't eat here. Because in those days, meals were actually, they were able to be observed. So people would go recline the table, and then people were actually allowed to go and watch people eat. Like, imagine you go home tonight, you recline, and then just people from your street just kind of come over and just start, like, watching you eat and listening to your conversation. This, this is actually what happened. This was the culture, what was going on. And then verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, so Jesus is saying, really, he's saying he's likening those who are well to those who would be okay and those who are sick, uh, he's saying, as those who are sinners. So what does Jesus, what is he saying and what can we learn from him in this? Number one, Jesus redefines clean and unclean. Completely redefines it. What we see as unacceptable, Jesus can see as acceptable. He redefines what is clean and unclean. Jesus defines his ministry and purpose as one who calls sinners. Right? He's saying, I didn't come here so you righteous Pharisees could just come and hang out with me and I could teach you some good stuff. He says, no, you guys think you're okay, so I'm just going to like go hang out with people who don't think they're okay. And actually, they're a lot more fun to hang out with because they actually eat and drink, and it's kind of fun. <laughs> They let me recline at their table. And I'm not talking about, like, Jesus wasn't getting drunk with them, okay? The Pharisees just said that about him because they were upset with him, okay? So if you're saying, oh, we're allowed to get drunk? No, I'm not saying you're allowed to get drunk. Other parts of Scripture say drunkenness is a sin and it separates us from God. Jesus went to the cross to die because of drunkenness, okay? So I'm not saying that. Jesus was just, as people will say when they start looking at us, don't like the way that we live, we'll start poking things and saying things about us that are lies, all right? So Jesus' actions cause others to do a self-assessment. When Jesus said this to the um, to the religious elite, the Pharisees, they would have had to say, okay, who's he saying we are? Right? Is he saying we're righteous or is he saying that we're sinners? We don't want to be sinners. He must be saying we're righteous, so he didn't even come for us. Notice Jesus, when you're approached or when you take in the words of Jesus, you're forced to make a decision. He forces people to do self-assessment. And then Jesus is driven by salvation. Jesus wasn't hanging out with them because he was thinking, oh, I agree with everything that they do. 
He was hanging out with them because they needed saved. And so he hung out with them. And I think this is critical in the way that we do ministry. Are we hanging out with people and are we making it look like we're completely okay with everything that they do? No. But we go to the difficult, dark places to see people saved into the name of Jesus Christ so that they can experience a relationship with him. It's what drives us and uh, we're excited about that. All right. Next, let's continue on. 18 to 22, calling this section fasting and feasting. All right. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, what's really, really interesting is that there was only one day of the year that was required fast day. And it's Yom Kippur, which is also the Day of Atonement, the day of the year in the Jewish calendar where the sins of the people were, one, taken upon by a goat who was killed, and then a scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness. It was the one day of the year that they were actually required to fast. But what we learn about the Pharisees is that they think they need to fast far more often than one time a year. And so they instituted in their Pharisee law that you needed to fast on, um, what are the specific days? I have it here. Um, they were, I think it was Sunday and like Thursday. Sunday and Thursday. No, sorry. Pharisees fasted Mondays and Thursdays. And so John's disciples are making a mistake by following the way of the Pharisees and not the way of Jesus. So imagine every Monday and Thursday in Pharisaic law, you've got to fast. And so clearly Jesus and his disciples are not because Jesus is over eating and drinking. So notice how these two passages are kind of put in, a, in together for a reason. Jesus is eating and drinking with Levi and the sinners, and the Pharisees are fasting. All right, what is Jesus trying to say here? Um, let's continue on. And Jesus said to them, this is his response of why these guys do not fast. And you probably shouldn't either. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Uh, much like our day, when a wedding was happening, it was about feast, it was about joyful celebration. So what Jesus is just simply making a point is, you can't stick a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't make sense. When I'm here, he's referring himself to the bridegroom. We're not going to go fast. We're going to be joyful. We're going to be celebrating. Because when I'm not here, you know, so he says when the bridegroom is taken away from them, that is when you may practice your fasting. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So see, he's just using these um, metaphors to just simply explain. That doesn't make sense for what this is doing. And then he continues on one more and says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for, is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus gives three specific examples of, guys, we're not fasting because it doesn't make any sense to fast right now. It doesn't make any sense. Why would I do it that way? So what Jesus is doing here, uh, number one, is Jesus initiated a new state of affairs, and the old and new cannot be mixed together. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, he's talking about this new kingdom. So anytime we live in obedience to this king and his kingdom, we're participating in the new kingdom of God. He's saying the old way of doing things, guys, is gone. There's this new way. I'm here. This is a big deal. 
Alright, he's talking, he's really fulfilling all of the prophecies of before. The king is here, and his name is Jesus. Uh, secondly, Jesus came to make all things new. All things new. He's rewriting everything for them. So, you might be sitting here today, and you're like, and I am like too far gone to ever be accepted by this Jesus. And Jesus says back to you, no, I make all things new. You're never too far gone for me. I'm going to change it all. You're accepted. You're loved. And not only are you accepted and loved, but I've proven to you that love and acceptance goes to the cross and dies for somebody. And then lastly, Jesus came to eat, drink, and celebrate. So this is what I believe about that, is that we, as the church, need to be people that eat, drink, and celebrate. That we're not this, like, solemn, like, notice what you'd ask, like, most non-Christians, or people that have maybe been to a church before. Um, what's the church like? Oh, it's really boring. The church is not supposed to be boring. The church is a place of celebration. The church is a place where we get to eat together and drink together and celebrate life together. Why? Because Jesus shows us that that's what life is all about. He shows us. He exemplifies for you and for me what life is to be all about. He takes the old and he makes it new. And just as Jesus says to Levi, follow me, he says to you and to me, follow me. Walk this new road with me. We're going to do it. But you don't do it alone. We do it together. This is why our, our vision for Church of the Lord is a community on mission with Jesus. We don't do it alone. Jesus is with us. It's not like we come and we gather here and we spend time in our neighborhoods and sometimes when we pray, we encounter Jesus. Jesus is with us all the time, walking with us, teaching with us, leading us in this new way. So do you feel like this morning you're Levi? Like you've been cast out by the religious of the world? Well, Jesus doesn't want those religious. He wants you. And he's calling you. He's saying, follow me. Because I loved you. I accept you. What the religious of the world have said, you're not acceptable for years. I say you're acceptable. Let's do life together. Oh, and by the way, invite all your friends. I want to eat and drink with them. And this is what we get to do with people who don't love Jesus. We go to the places that he did. We go to the sinners. And we eat with them. We share a meal together. There's something powerful about sharing a meal. For years, since the very beginning of time, people share meals with one another. And so this is why at the core of Church of the Lord, in our missional communities, we have potluck dinners. Because when you share a meal with somebody, you're not only experiencing the food and the taste of it, you get to offer somebody a beautiful meal, so they get to say, thank you for making me this beautiful meal. At, at every best opportunity, don't invite somebody over and just order pizza. Invite somebody over and make them a delicious meal. Show them, because the energy that you put into that meal shows them how much you love and you care for them. Food is powerful, and Jesus in this passage shows us not only do we call sinners to follow Jesus, we hang out with them, and we share meals with them. And I'll with you, but I'm a sinner, we're all sinners declared as saints because of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do this morning now is I'm going to have Matt KG, he's going to come up, and uh, one thing that we want to do continually uh, through our time together is to have uh, stories shared about life change. So people that have been changed by the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. And so what Matt's going to do this morning is he's going to share his story with us. And then um, in future weeks, if you'd like to share your story of life change, like we studied in Levi today, Matt's going to share his story of life change with Jesus. And then we're going to sing some songs to 
to close us off this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.